Hey listeners, welcome back to another episode of Maintenance Disrupted. This is the technology innovation series where we set out to look at the people and technology fueling industries 4.0. My name is Blair Fraser and today I sit down with Roy over at Deskcase to talk about breathers. Now, what Deskcase has been able to do, unlike any other breather on the market, Deskcase's connected breathers eliminates the subjectivity of color changing desiccant media. So hopefully all of you on your rotating equipment have some sort of desiccant breather on there instead of just the um, typical dust cap that's on there. And if we look at, you know, traditionally why rotating equipment fails, we know it's typically something is going wrong with the lubrication. And what Deskcase has been able to do is through their patent pending isologic sensor technology, they're able to provide a precise measurement of your breeder's life to eliminate replacing breathers too soon or too late. But also these key variables that come in these um, connected breathers can also give you a lot of insights into what's happening with your equipment. In this week's episode, I talk with Roy at Deskcase about how a very important but overlooked aspect of rotating equipment life by ensuring your lubricants are protected from a harmful moisture and particulates. But can these seemingly simple devices become smarter? Of course, and this is what I love about IoT. With the addition of key moisture, temperature, and battery sensors, you can maximize the life of these breathers and gain insights into your equipment health that was previously not available. But before we get into this podcast, here's a quick note from our sponsors. Hello, everybody. This is Steve Doby here, one of your hosts of Maintenance Disrupted. If maintaining heavy equipment in BC and Alberta is part of your job, I'm excited to tell you about the fuel and lubricant supplier, StarWest Petroleum. Having personally worked with StarWest, I can tell you their service is unmatched, and they are committed to saving you both money and downtime. Their service team learns your equipment and suggests ways to extend its life and overall perform better. I was in the throes of starting a new job at a large-scale mine in BC, and we wanted to improve reliability quickly. One of our top issues was hydrocarbon management, and with the support of StarWest team, we were able to reduce our cost and ultimately chart a better path forward for our hydrocarbon management. My bosses were impressed, but I really can't take the credit. StarWest Petroleum did all the legwork. StarWest is a top-tier distributor of Philips 66 lubricants, Tyndall Performance Motor Oils, Philips 66 Aviation Lubricants, Redline Synthetics, and Aspen Alkylate Fuel for Professionals. Also available from StarWest is clear and marked gasoline and diesel, heating and furnace oil, but really it's their customer service that stands out. For more information, go to starwestpetroleum.ca or send me an email and I will get you in contact with the StarWest team. You'll be glad you did, and so will your equipment. Now, here's your episode. Well, Roy, thank you for coming on the Maintenance Disrupted podcast. I'm happy to have you on today to talk about, in in particular, but we're going to get you know a little bit uh, deeper into all things around uh, lubrication and contaminant control. But in particular, I wanted to get you on the show to talk about breathers and specifically um, your connected breather or IoT solution from a breather perspective that's been out. I think since 2019, and it caught my eye probably back in, in late 2019 with IMC. And, and I was thinking to myself, like, what can you do with a breather? 
like it, it, it's it, in my mind, it's, it's a, you know, everyone should have them. Uh, unfortunately, most people don't, <laughs> which I think right. and like, and, and, you know, you, you put it on there and it changes color, you replace it. And that's probably my breather knowledge. And I was thinking to myself, well, test case came out with this IOT breather. What the heck could they do to it to make it quote unquote smart? Or are they just connecting something for the sake of connecting something? And then I dug in, I'm like, wow, this is, you know, what IOT is all about. Um, so I wanted to get you on the on the show to talk more about that and and your your connected solutions because you're doing a lot more than just looking at contamination control from a breather point of view, but also looking at oil quality and things like that. So I do appreciate you coming on, Roy, to to discuss um, this and a bunch of other things that I'm assuming we'll get into. <laughs> well, Blair, I am more than happy to be here, and thank you for the opportunity uh, to talk with you. It's it's, it's always a pleasure. Um, you know, it's it's pretty funny. You were you were talking about the breather. Uh, you know, uh, sometimes to my detriment, I, I'm I'm kind of an open book. But originally, the 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 first thought on having the the connected breather uh, was really a connection, you know, to the mobile app because one of the, the the questions that we kept running up against was how pink is pink? You know, whenever the the breather turns from blue to pink, it's sped, and so people. You know, people wanted to know, you know, it's like, well, when do I really change this? So that was, believe it or not, the first thought. And uh, the, the, the other thought of having that uh, to be able to uh, have the, the remote app to be able to collect the data still had to be within a couple of hundred feet to, to collect that was uh, when you had a, an asset that was in a dangerous location and you couldn't get to it to visually inspect it while it was in operation. So that was actually kind of how it got started. Uh, but then when we were testing it, that's whenever uh, it, it, it really hit us right between the eyes uh, that it's an excellent way to collect uh, some data points that are very, very meaningful. Uh, we actually, like I say, while we were testing just the, the, uh, uh, the, whether the breather actually gave us a correct reading and so forth, we had it at a lumber mill. And that lumber mill... Um, we were looking at it and it was spending the way that we anticipated. Everything was going along great. And then all of a sudden we see that it is being consumed very, very rapidly. And the way the sensors uh, are in there, we could tell that the moisture was actually coming from within the system itself, as opposed to the outside air. So we picked up the phone and called them. This is before we had, you know, our, our remote uh, monitoring program in place. And we, you know, we said, hey, we're seeing this. Can you go out and check it out and see what's going on? Well, they had um, actually done some work in the area and decided they were going to steam clean the HPU. And when they did, they ended up injecting a bunch of water. And so when we ran the numbers uh, based upon the moisture content, the uh, pump manufacturer's life expectancy table said that 75% of that pump's life would have been consumed uh, within a month. And ironically, they had just taken their oil sample two days before they did that steam cleaning. So right away, you've got a couple of uh, data points that, that prove very, very valuable. One is something happened to my asset. I need to go out there and take a look at it, see if I can correct this situation. Second, think of the, the amount of time it would have taken to go back and figure out what happened in that month 
you know, without knowing when the event occurred, if they were just relying solely on the oil sample. So those two, two things right there ended up, you know, providing a lot of value. Uh, and so, yeah, we, we, we've now, you know, with our, especially with the remote uh, monitoring program, we, we can see, you know, what's going on and detect events like that. And conversely, um, I've actually seen, uh, you've been around enough uh, steel mills to know that central lube systems are notoriously wet. Um, and, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, we uh, uh, just because we're analyzing the data, we're looking at it. It's like this breather should have shown some consumption by now. And we pick up the phone and, you know, come to find out someone had uh, actually removed the man access cover and just left it laying on the side. So <laughs> yes, not so only, you know, <laughs> it found a new way to breathe. Exactly. And so without going through the breather, you know, not only was it not uh, drying the air, but now we've got all the contaminants coming in as well. So, so value from that. So does that kind of paint a picture of some it, of the value? It does, Roy. It's so similar to my journey, you know, at UE Systems and specifically with the OnTrack is thing, you know, people often think that technology is driven from a certain initial get-go, right? Concept on the paper, and then it comes all the way through. And that's not the case. It's and, and, you know, I, I really this from the, the startup world either is you're pivoting multiple times within um, taking this product from concept to market. And that, that's a great example of, of you know, uh, and I love that saying how pink is pink, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, we see that in maintenance reliability best practices is, you know, trying to get more quantitative as much as you can with work orders, right? And one of them would be go around, do a PM, check if it's pink. Well, you know, to a colorblind person, right? That's going to be a different thing, right? And I, I jokingly say this, but between guys and girls, we have a different level of what pink is, right? Um, and and somehow females can can figure out different colors of, of white more than more than men, right? So I think that's a, a great analogy of how pink is pink, and that I love that technology, um, how it came to to be from from moving from a mobile app to a connective services and putting these sensors in. And I guess just, just for the sake of our listeners, just in case someone doesn't know what a breather is or what it does, I think we've alluded to it in terms of um, allowing these, these assets to, to breathe. And maybe you can give us a, a quick overview of, of what a breather is. And if you're not using uh, you know, a, a connected IoT breather, what was your method to ensure that breather, breather is functioning? Sure. Um not to go too deep into to desk case history, but it kind of paints the picture. The way we got started about 30, I guess about 38 years ago, um, there were gearboxes at a corn syrup plant and um, the, uh, they had put uh, synthetic oil in there saying that the uh, uh, lubricant would last you know, three times longer, get better power transfer, all the benefits. And, and that's true if it's clean and dry. Well, they found that with the breather that they had on there, it was not, they, they weren't achieving their goals. As a matter of fact, they were now spending more money uh, because it was getting dirty and wet. So what the breather does, which didn't exist at the time, uh, uh, it's, a, you know, it's again, it's one of those things you evolve uh, into what is needed. Uh, our, our founder, he, he basically created one out of uh, PVC pipe and uh, the, the general concept is the same today. So what a breather does is there is a particulate filter in the bottom of it. The air comes in through the bottom 
Then there's desiccant. So, you know, we, the primary desiccant we use is silica. There are a few others uh, available on the market, depending upon how dry you have to get it and, you know, what you, frankly, what you want to spend on it. Uh, and then another particulate filter just to make sure that none of that desiccant gets into the system. So as the air passes through, that uh, the, the particulate filter takes the dirt out, the desiccant takes the moisture out. So now you've got clean and dry air uh, going into your system. So that's the benefit. And that's really, you know, what, what should be on virtually every system that, that has lubricant in it, because we, we, we know, and I, I know you know, Blair, 70% of the contamination inside that box actually comes in uh, through that breather pore. So uh, I'm with you uh, most, uh, <laughs> I think, I think we're together on this. The, uh, uh, what most people were doing was, hey, whatever came on it from the factory, that's what we're going to use. Now, the good news is a lot of the factories uh, are now actually including uh, a desiccant breather as their standard offering when it goes out the door because they're seeing it as well. Frankly, it helps them with their warranty issues. It keeps the thing from, you know, getting destroyed. But uh, the way the the old, uh, and they get mad at me when I say this, but it, it fits the great explanation, the dumb breathers, uh, not the smart breathers that we have today, but the dumb ones uh, have a, a chemical agent on there that uh, is blue. It's a dark blue whenever it uh, is is brand new and dry. And as the moisture comes in, uh, it will actually turn pink. Some people think it's like a litmus paper. It has the same type of effect, but it's actually something different. Um, but uh, as it uh, as it gets wet, it gets pinker, and then it can even go all the way to white when it is absolutely completely consumed. And uh, so that was, you know, what they were supposed to be doing now with the, uh, but even whenever it's, it's down in the low pink and even early white, there can still be as, you know, as much as 10 to 15% breather life left. So there, there are some economies by, by going with the smart sensors. We actually use humidity sensors at the top and the bottom of the unit, and they can measure, you know, what the actual moisture content is. And we know whenever it's completely saturated uh, and when it is uh, no longer effective, but we can get it down uh, pretty much within 1% accuracy. So uh, that way you get the extended life and, and know that the thing is actually still functioning. Yeah. And I think the, the way, and I, I would call that dumb versus smart. And it was, um, um, a number of years ago, Dale Maloney of, of Honda great, did a great presentation I sat through and, and he described it as two things. Is in, your, in your plant, you have two types of assets or equipment. You have smart things like VFDs that have additional data and stuff you can do with it, or you have dumb things that you have to add smart things to, right? And I think that's a great example. And, and the whole time you're giving me that analogy of, of you know, that um, remaining useful life looking at, you know, it still has some life left in it when it's, you know, moving from that pink to white, there's still some life. And, and, you know, yes, you're, you're probably, you know, you're probably better off replacing than trying to go too long without it. And, you know, it depends on how critical the asset is and, and the moisture level in the, in the area and things like that. But here's an example, and it's something we've been doing, and, and I talk about this, you know, from an AI perspective as well, is these ideas of a soft sensor. So what, what have we done for forever? You know, it, it was when I started my career 20-something years ago, we did it. So it dates back further than that to just a general filter, right? We measure the pressure before and the pressure after, right? And we take that delta, and that's how we know if that filter is clogging or not. So yes, it's a pressure sensor, but really what it's doing is telling us that remaining useful life of that filter, right? And so when you think about it from 
the, the desiccant and breather point of view, you're measuring the moisture in and the moisture out. And, and I'm assuming what you're doing in there is looking, am I reducing that moisture content compared to what's coming in to what's coming out enough, right? And if that delta starts to get more closer together, that's your remaining useful life. I'm sure that might be a little more sophisticated than that, but that's essentially what you're doing. Yeah, I do know that the uh, the algorithm that is in the communication module is uh, uh, actually quite um, uh, complex, is is what I'm told. But but you're absolutely right. I mean, the idea is to know, you know, are we getting clean, dry air in there, and are we keeping it dry enough? And that'll actually vary a little bit, you know, based upon what lubricant you have in there. But for the most part, they're all below a pretty, you know, easy threshold. Uh, and it depends on who you ask as to what that is, but, you know, we, we definitely want to keep the relative humidity down well below the dew point, uh, and then, you know, preferably 50% or less. So, uh, you know, we, we can get down, I think, as low as 35. So, you know, the drier, the better. But yeah, it's, uh, uh, it, it is, uh, it's, it's pretty simple, even though it's a, a complex uh, device, you know, it, it's a pretty simple concept. One thing that, you know, came to mind after you asked me the first question, uh, my father used to work um, uh, an international harvester in a foundry that no longer exists it's where the UPS hub is. But I remember uh, he took me in there. Uh, they, they would have a tour once a year. And I remember seeing this pump. <clears throat> I guess I was about seven or eight years old. And I noticed um, that they had a, um, a little uh, nipple sticking up and an elbow and another elbow pointed back down. And I, I said, well, why did they do that? And he goes, that keeps the dirt out. So, uh, but I hate to say it, but I still see that from time to time today, you know, uh, so it, it, it's amazing, you know, what people have been doing over the years to quote unquote, keep the dirt out. Yeah, that'll keep out, uh, as one of my colleagues, uh, you know, Mark Barnes, he always likes to say, you know, that'll keep out frogs and small children, yeah, but um, <laughs> yeah, not, not, uh, not what you need, uh, uh, what you need to do, because uh, as you know, the, the, the particles that actually do the most damage, you can't actually see, uh, you know, with the human eye, so. That's uh, right. I'm picturing Mark saying that right now. And I, I do owe credit to a lot of the uh, uh, fundamental knowledge that I know is, is because of, of sitting through uh, Mark's um, uh, ability to, to train stubborn headed people like myself. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, no, I, I, I can picture Mark saying that. And, and yeah, so, you know, and, and, and this is why I think what we're seeing now with IoT and, and connected devices is great because, you know, you guys are the experts, you guys have the experience. So to be able to um, measure certain parameters that are going to give you what, what you know, a user wants to know is, is not the moisture content and all that kind of stuff. Now that, that's data, that's important to know when you're troubleshooting, but you know, what is, how long does this a breather have left in this life, right? Um, from, from that point of view, right? What is the estimated remaining useful life of, of um, that breather, right? Um, and I think you guys have done a great job. That's one of the, the outputs of this connected breather is, is the breather life remaining in, in terms of percentage, right? Well, that's, that's one of the, the, the things and, and that's to a, a, a measurement of, of seeing if you're achieving your goal. But uh, I forget, I, I think it was a Harvard professor said this, um, uh, I think in a sales class and it was, because people don't want to buy a quarter inch drill bit, they want a quarter inch hole. And so, <laughs> you know, so if you think about it, you know, the, the tools that we sell and, and the same for you is what I think the, the end user really wants 
is to have a protected asset that's going to give them the most value out of it that they can get. And, and I'm as guilty of it as anybody, but uh, we'll get lost in sometimes in the, uh, uh, you know, in the technology to be able to monitor that. Um, and, you know, it's like, oh, we want to know this. We want to know. It's like, not really. We want to know that asset is protected. Uh, we actually, and, and I'm not trying to do a sales pitch here, but uh, I'm just trying to, to prove the point. One of the things that we added with our remote monitoring program was an asset lubrication policy because, you know, okay, fine. We can tell you with that. And, we, you know, we have other sensors to, to measure because, you know, there's a lot more to lubrication than just the breather and keeping the headspace clean and dry. But a lot of people don't really know how the, the proper way to um, uh, proper way to lubricate their system. I was in a plant a couple of weeks ago, and I'm sorry to chuckle, but you, it's one of those things that you can you see and you 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 know how it came about. But um, uh, this was a plant where they uh, manufactured appliances. They made ovens actually, and uh, one of the things they have to do is uh, bake on you know the porcelain or ceramic coating uh, that goes on the lining uh, of the oven um so I'm, I'm actually taking a shortcut just so i don't spend too much on it but right. the gearbox sitting on top of that oven was operating at a temperature that somebody did actually do the homework and figured out that it was going to be um uh going to require a 680 gear oil in order to maintain the viscosity necessary you know for that gearbox so then somebody got the brilliant idea that, hey, if it's good in that one and it fixed that problem, it'll be good everywhere. So, uh, and that's not the case. And so uh, 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 go, referring back to Mark, he calls that the uh, Frank's uh, red hot sauce uh, theory. And I think, you know, their slogan, you know, it's good on anything. So, <laughs> um, but uh, so that's, that's one of the things that, that, that we're trying to achieve is, A, first off, let's make sure that the thing is lubricated properly. And then are we protecting that lubricant so the lubricant can do uh, all of its jobs you know, for the asset? Right, exactly. And, and that um, earlier use case you were talking about, in the, and I think it was the lumber yard, where you, you were able to determine the moisture was coming from internal versus ex ex external. Yeah, correct. Uh, so with the two sensors, um, uh, and again, I'm, I'm the open book, it's a little counterintuitive whenever you look at the, the graphs, because the graphs are set up to show you what the breather is seeing. So the top sensor is what actually sees um, what's inside the asset. And then the bottom sensor is measuring uh, basically the, the ambient air on the outside. So because we have the two different sensors in there, when we saw that top sensor was the one that got hit, uh, with the, the big slug of moisture um, and showing that desiccant being consumed very rapidly, then we knew that moisture was coming from within the system. Now, I've actually seen, and it was pretty interesting, where somebody um, decided they wanted to put two, uh, two breathers uh, on, on an HPU, and they, we have check valves on these so that they uh, uh, don't breathe uh, unnecessarily. You know, desiccant doesn't care where the moisture comes from. It's going to pull it in from wherever it can get. So mm -hmm. if that air is allowed to move freely, then it's going to just continually, you know, soak up uh, moisture from the ambient air. So we had check valves on there. But oddly enough, the vibration on this unit, because they just... Honestly, again, it, sometimes you see things and you try and figure out why. And they said, well, it, it had two ports on it. So we decided to put two breathers on it. Well, the vibration of the unit was actually causing it to work like a diaphragm pump. And it was bringing moisture in one and sending that clean, dry air out the other the one. The other one. <laughs> yeah. And uh, 
So it, uh, it, it was uh, consuming a, a fairly large breather in about a week. One was, you know, was being expended, you know, rapidly, and the other one wasn't showing any signs of degradation at all. So uh, I, I don't know why I felt the need to tell that, but no, that's, that's one of those things where you can figure out what's going on because you had the sensors in the different locations. Right. So not only are we looking at the breather remaining life in terms of percentage, but the, the connected breather is also giving us some indication of the saturation direction, including um, top, bottom, or, or in some cases, both, right? Exactly, exactly. And that's kind of what we want to see is, you know, uh, well, actually, we, we prefer to see just the ambient air sensor get hit first. Uh, and then uh, we see that going down and down and then the top one actually not showing any uh, degradation of the silica at the top at all. Uh, and then whenever that one starts going, then we kind of have a prediction of, you know, when that that is going to need to be uh, replaced, which, you know, we'll, we'll sit there and, and if you're on the remote uh, program, uh, we'll actually send a, a breather uh, in time for you to replace it at, at about the time we think it's going to hit, you know, one or two percent. Exactly. Exactly. So now you have confidence extending that period um, down to whatever number you're, you are um, comfortable with in terms of that remaining use of life to make sure you have, you know, enough, enough to in stock or can order it to go replace that one, right? Um, which hopefully will will get some economies of scale in there, making sure you're driving that one to as near empty as possible. No, right. absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, full disclosure, it's like, you know, with our program, if if they're on the uh, subscribed asset program, uh, obviously we want the most life out of that as possible while providing, you know, what we promise. So yeah, we want to get the most efficient use out of it as possible. Because, it, and that's yeah. that's brilliant too. And, and um, you know, just to be candid with the audience too, um, fr from UE Systems point of view, you know, we're, we have the on-track for, for grease bearings in terms of, um, dispensing grease only when required based on the condition of friction. And it, it's something I've learned from you guys is, is that, uh, you know, if the systems work, it, you know, it, it's essentially putting, you know, our money where our mouth is as well is, 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 you know, installed properly. And those type of things is, is you should, this breather should last this long. Now there's always situations where someone leaves the the access port open and it finds a new way to breathe but um you know those type of issues and i think that's a great example and that what i've really appreciated from your model is you've you've done that and you've offered this as a as a you, you have two options the the we monitor service which your expertise will monitor it and 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 i'm finding this more and more is you know yes everyone has problems out there but we don't have enough time it, it, with anything time is the enemy right um mm -hmm. and do you have enough time within your day um, to actually, you know, take action on these alerts, look at the data, make informed decisions and things like that. And that's where your servers come in, but you've also taken it one step further and you've applied the training fundamentals and these audits around these pieces of equipment too, because at the end of the day, a breather is just one aspect of it, right? Making sure you, as you mentioned, you're using the right type of oil and those right type of procedures in those gearboxes and things like that is going to have an equal, if not more important aspect than just the breather itself. Sure, well, uh, one quick thing and then uh, a question uh, for you. Um, one of the things that I learned a long time ago, and this is absolutely true for me, if somebody tells me to do something, I wanna know why. You know, and so if people don't understand why they're doing something, they're probably not going to do it well, and there's a very good chance they're not going to do it right. So that's why the education piece is, is so important, 
because it, again, full, full uh, candor, I, uh, um, I found it very difficult to believe, you know, having grown up being taught that if you could hold up an oil sample and you didn't see stuff floating around in it, it was clean, you know, that, that the, those little small particles uh, uh, do actually do all of that damage. So it took a while for, for that to sink in, but there's just way too much data out there, you know, to prove, you know, that proves that that is true. But the question I have for you is, you know, we're collecting data and we're looking at it. And when we see things, we're we're recommending you know actions be taken and so forth. Uh, with with your product and, and and just in all of your products, I guess. What do you do? You think the majority of people are actually acting upon it, or because uh, I mean I have personal experience with with. Uh, I had a, a, a trucking fleet where I used to check their oil samples every morning and uh, I saw where one had a coolant leak and, you know, of course, I pick up the phone and tell them, you know, hey, you've got a problem on this engine. And then another sample comes in, you know, a month or so later and it's like, hey, you still have that problem. It's getting worse. And then I go visit them and they, they're rebuilding the engine. Now, they had uh, what they kind of pulled a, a little bit of a joke on me because he said, I thought you told me this oil sampling stuff would would uh, keep me from having as many repairs. And it's like, yeah, but you have to act upon it. But he said they had already made the decision to rebuild that engine, which is why they didn't fix that problem right. at that time. But he didn't tell me that at first. So, but, uh, but so what do you see in the field? Do, do, are most people acting upon it or do they know enough about the data to act upon it? Yeah, and I think it's it's a it's a mix, and it's it's one thing I'm very passionate about, and I, I appreciate the the question. Now I'm getting interviewed, and I think that's a good a good thing, Roy. Is <laughs> and and it's it's something I've had to bite my tongue on recently, and I'm trying to get more vocal about it because what I'm seeing is you have the purists that say you know you have to have that you know um, the foundation of, of maintenance and reliability in place before you use technology, and which I 100% agree with, mm -hmm. um, but. You know, there, there, there's people in there, and, and they're typically an older generation that's coming through. And this is this might ruffle some feathers, but um, you know, I don't need this technology if I have these fundamentals. I can do this. And, and my challenge, this individual, was they gave a use case where the person actually filled it was a, a transformer with the wrong oil, right? And that was a human issue. So yes, fundamentally an SOP, proper training. But this person, when we looked into it, was actually you know a very qualified, skilled person there could have been an aspect of their life where they just weren't thinking straight. Right. And I've done that many times dealing with different world areas where you're, you're just different ends of the clock. And I, you know, I put the coffee creamer on top of the fridge and then my coffee in the fridge, like it just didn't make sense. But, you know, I, I drink coffee every morning. I should know better, but sometimes that gets the best of you. So if you had the sensor in there and I, and I don't know if it exists, maybe you can correct me, but you know, that was to measure the, um, the viscosity of that oil or something like that and flag you right away saying, Hey, you know, unfortunately, you put the wrong oil in here. Don't start it up, right? Mm -hmm. And and so you know where I see technology coming in is, is to address some of those human issues. Now, to your question is, are there people taking action? No. Fundamentally, when you think about um, you know IoT, in my opinion, we have the um, you know justifying the business case. You have uh, you know picking your source of data, connecting that data, storing that data, contextualizing it, and using that data. I think that that use of what you're going to do with that data should become first of every IoT um, project is what you're going to do with that data. Because at the end of the day, and we've seen this since, you know, in, in, in your case before, um, you know, continuous technology was there to measure oil. You know, I'll, I'll go back to vibration monitoring, which has, you know, been the, the dominant player is when I led a team that did vibration analysis, we would see that and I would jump into some of these reports and it would say, you know, 
um, I suggest you, um, you know, take additional measurements or replace this asset, shut it down if it's redundant. And then, you know, our guys would go back a month later and it would be a brand new pump sitting there and we go, what happened? Well, this one broke. Like, well, we told you, but you didn't do anything about it, right? So, so fundamentally, I think where technology has to get into is either the technology or the people using it have to drive that action. Now, what I'm seeing more and more, and I think this is a good thing, is no longer can there be these end user vendor relationships. So what we're getting into with IoT and SaaS agreements and, and your we monitors no different is a partnership, mm -hmm. right? So you're responsible um, to give that, turn that data into actionable insights, right? So they can make that. And ideally what should happen from this is, you know, you need to go look at this, 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 right? So very descriptive. So they have to sit there and mine the data, if you will. And that, that's some cases there's obviously there's some customers that can, uh, you know, take on that ownership themselves if they have the time, the expertise and, and to do that. But more and more where I think we're going to see that is the leveraging of partners to take that action. In fact, if you look at our on-track system, what we've done is we've tried to enable the human to get out of that loop as much as possible. So if you give it permission and it senses it needs grease, it's going to put grease in for you. It's going to tell you how much to put in, why it stopped greasing and all that kind of stuff, right? And it's not because humans aren't capable of going and greasing. We've been doing it for a lot of years, but there's always a possibility for error. There's unsafe. There's a time to walk out and find that. So by what I call closed loop IoT solutions is taking that action as far as possible that the human is comfortable with, right? Oh, yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say that makes absolute sense, but that's, sorry, I cut you off. Go ahead. Yeah. And the other thing in what we're seeing, and I think this is, you know, if, if we speak in candor here, why, you know, we're getting closer and closer together is between UE systems and desk cases, you know, there's no one solution out there, right? There's no one solution. If you put all your data into here, then you get this because, you know, you're looking at the oil, you're looking at the breathers, but what about the bearing aspect of it, right? Mm -hmm. And what about these other things? What other misalignment on the motor, right? And, and those type of things aren't going to manifest into the bearing until they're later on. So those are the type of things where, you know, I think there's there's, there's a few customers that, that I know of that are, are trying to lead this, whether they're, you know, pushing vendors to open up their platform or, you know, some cases, some of the larger organizations are building their own, um, which, which is good. It's a, a must for, for people like us, the partners of the world that are out there to make this data available to who needs it and what needs it and what being other platforms, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The, uh, actually, I saw a study. Uh, there was an offshore um, uh, oil rig that uh, they had 30,000 sensors, but they were actually only acting upon 1% of the data being collected <laughs> from them. Uh, you're absolutely right. It is, uh, it, it's, it's data without action is, is useless. You know, I mean, it, it's, it, to me, that's a cost, you know, that that's almost liability as opposed to something, you know, that could help. But, uh, one of the things that, that just really makes sense for, for us to be talking is when you look at, you know, predictive maintenance, you know, versus, you know, a true proactive lubrication plan, you know, predictive is a wonderful thing. Don't get me wrong. I love vibration, thermography, you know, every, every, all the technologies have their, their place, but, but by the sheer name of it, it's predicting when it's going to fail. 
where you're playing in, you know, by the getting the asset lubricated properly, that's back, you know, before the potential failure should, you know, start. So it's, it's, we're progressing back that P to F curve, you know, the, 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 uh, uh, problem to failure curve, and we're trying to get before that P actually starts. You know, we want to be in exactly between the that. design and the P. So, yeah, and, and, <laughs> exactly. And, yeah. And, and that's really that's that's the proactive domain, right? And, and here's the reality, and it's it's you know something I follow. A lot of people have have pushed this, and I think it's a great thing. Is you know deflect elimination. The challenge is, you know, we often get rewarded, and I see it every day on LinkedIn right, is these cases, and, and it's typically on the vibration, because vibration is the dominant side, and, and it's a bunch of squiggly lines where people have to, in PowerPoint, draw an arrow, so I know what the heck to look at, right, and I still don't, and they say, well, yeah, we were able to detect this, and it, it avoided this much failure, right, because mm -hmm. um, that, that gets celebrated, you can quantify it, but if it never had that failure in the first place, and, you know, the numbers show 50 to 80% of, of bearing issues are caused by lubrication, it's hard to put on, like, you can you imagine someone putting on LinkedIn, hey, I didn't have a failure this week, <laughs> right? Like, I'm going to say, well, that's okay, good for you, like, right? Because I did the right things. And, and that's where that culture shift has to happen. I do believe it's starting to happen. But the reality is a lot of the shiny things that are happening in, in Industry 4.0 are on that predictive of detecting an issue and not helping prevent it. Now, that's not to say you couldn't use prediction and then root cause analysis it out. And, and we're actually doing a, a webinar coming up shortly with, with upkeep on that to, to look at that from a lubrication point of view and bring it back into how would you eliminate that failure from coming in the first place. So you can circle back around with that and, and use that technology to aid in that process, right? Yeah. Um, so circling back around, though, I'm just going to throw something out there, the something, a behavior that I've noticed over the years. Uh, I've worked with several companies to improve their, their lubrication practices. And what's funny is you will clean things up and you were saying, you know, nobody would post on LinkedIn that they didn't have a failure. Uh, obviously some failures had to be, uh, to, to have occurred uh, in order to be able to say this, but, um, you know, I've, I've got one customer that, that says, hey, we actually reduced our downtime by 62%. So, you know, that is how, you know, you could celebrate that. But then when we talk about full circle, what I also often see, and it's a challenge that I think we, we you know, every one of us, you know, that are, that are either listening to this or talking about this, is when it does go right for long periods of time, all of a sudden, especially if there's some personnel changes, we're not having any problems. We don't need to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, that that that's the the cycle that I see that that is is quite frustrating. It's like you're not having that problem because you're doing these things. That that's why you're not having that problem. So, you know, that's just something to to, to chew on. So that's going to probably be the next, uh, probably through artificial intelligence. Uh, I guess is is about going to be the fastest way to prove that though is is there's going to have to be data for saying why you need to continue doing what you're doing exactly exactly and so you know just as we're going to wrap up here shortly there's a, a few other things that i think you guys have have done a really good job at is is you know opening up your ecosystem and in terms of you know the remote monitoring is it's not only the the desk and breather but you've also been able to integrate additional sensors to complement what is really happening in that asset in terms of the contamination and oil quality. Um, 
in, including contamination monitoring sensors and moisture content and those type of things, or oil condition monitoring sensors. So would you be able to give me a brief overview of what those are doing and why you would use those in addition to the desiccant breather? Sure. Um, you know, obviously the desiccant breather is how we got started. It's our core business and um, very proud of that. And, uh, you know, from, from our standpoint, it's probably one of the most cost effective, uh, you know, sensors on the market. I look at it more as a sensor uh, than a breather for all the things mm -hmm. that we talked about earlier, but it also does double duty. It does the, you know, cleans out the particulate and the moisture. So, you know, you're getting value from that, but to, that's only a part of it that, you know, that just is protecting the lubricant, but that doesn't tell you anything about the quality. Uh, you mentioned the contamination monitor. Um, some people refer to those as an inline particle counter. Uh, lots of value there, especially whenever you're uh, diagnosing, because here's what can happen uh, on systems. And when we started uh, monitoring these, we started seeing all sorts of things that sort of explained how certain things had happened. Uh, people were taking their monthly oil samples. Everything was good, but they still ended up having a failure. Well, when you have real-time contamination monitoring, <clears throat> you end up seeing what's going on. And we found that quite often when a system was cycling, that's whenever the contamination was actually being generated. Uh, uh, one that comes to mind was just some misalignment uh, on a hydraulic cylinder. And so it was causing excessive wear. Well, that was, you know, wearing the cylinder and it was wearing the pump, but because there was kidney loop filtration, it was getting cleaned up before the mm. uh, next oil sample was taken. So you weren't catching these events. Um, I was actually uh, at a steel mill down in Brazil uh, and they were actually every two minutes having an event that was taking it uh, from a nice clean I think it was actually down to about a 15, 14, 11, uh, and it was jumping all the way on the four micron particles, jumping all the way up to a 20, you know, and so that that's how, you know, we were able to determine, you know, by the cycle when it was occurring, where the problem existed. So you can do the, the root cause analysis collecting data like that. Now, you know, every, every, you know, one of the challenges I get whenever, you know, we start talking to people, it's like, oh, I've got to buy all these sensors and so forth. No, really, you, you want to look at what's going to be the most important and what's going to give you the most value. So like on a hydraulic system, yeah, we, we if it's a critical uh, system, yeah, contamination monitor is definitely uh, something you would want, uh, you know, and you can even throw in a moisture content sensor on that. Um, but on a gearbox, we wouldn't recommend that. Uh, for that, we would probably want to look at something like a wear debris sensor or maybe an oil quality sensor. Uh, oil quality sensor, uh, and, and I do want to say this now, is today's state of the sensors, of most of them, um, they're going to let you know something has changed. Uh, to rely on them to get an accurate reading of everything that's going on, it's, I don't think the technology is there yet. Sure, uh, sure. I, I think it, what they're great at is saying, if you tell me what this is supposed to look like, I'll let you know where it changed. Now, like the oil quality sensor, let's say you only have <clears throat> one issue. Let's just say that the oil is oxidizing. Yeah, it's a great monitor for that. It'll tell you exactly when you need to, um, you know, when to change that lubricant or about how much useful life you have uh, left in it. But now you start adding combinations of things in there. You know, moisture is going to conduct more. Uh, if you get air bubbles in there, it will conduct less uh, because it uses basically capacitance and, and uh, conductance to, to measure what's going on with that lubricant. But back to something you said uh, much earlier, if somebody puts the wrong lubricant in there, it's going to detect that. 
typically, especially if it's got a different additive package, which can be very detrimental to things like steam turbines. So, um, you know, just there, there, there are, I don't want to say multitude, you know, our, our core offering is basically uh, four different sensors. Um, but, uh, you know, a steel mill or a paper mill, you know, we, we know it's, it's, there's going to be some dirt in there and we know there's going to be moisture in there, but sometimes big slugs of moisture need to be addressed. So, you know, on that, we would probably just say a moisture content sensor is going to be enough. Rarely do we say, hey, you got to put all the sensors on there in order to have meaningful data. No, we're, we know we have enough experience where we can say you're going to be able to, you know, handle the, the vast majority of the things that you'll have with that asset with this different type of sensor. That's, that's perfect. And I like the way you put that. And, and it was a very honest response, right? It's not going to solve all the problems. It's not going to replace like a full lab analysis of the oil quality, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and that's where I'm trying to push people to is, especially if you're a little less on your maturity is what information do you need to know to make a next step in terms of determining what you need to do? And, and, you know, what I call just basic anomaly detection. Right, it is you know we we see things in the vibration world of, of you know all this in depth diagnostic, which is great, but you're not doing that on every single bearing, right? Otherwise, right. you you're never going to get around to all your bearings, right? So mm -hmm. it's it's starting to guide you in terms of you know where you need to take additional data, where things are starting to change, and I think that's a that's a practical approach when you're combining different technologies together. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, one of the, the, the cornerstones is it has to make sense for both of us. And if they're not going to get the value out of it, they're, they're probably not going to continue to do business with us. So <laughs> take it to where it's valuable. So I was actually same same plant where the, uh, the 680 gear oil was used. Uh, they had put in, I want to say 300 vibration sensors. And then after they got a bunch of uh, data and started looking at things, they said, you know what? probably about a third of them we probably shouldn't have installed. So, you know, that that's one of the things that, that it's got to make sense, you know, look at the things where, you know, and, and forget about, um, you know, sensors and everything, you know, that we've talked about today. When people ask us, like, let's say on a little small gearbox on a conveyor that's non-critical, uh, has a couple of quarts of oil, uh, not heavily loaded at all, We'll actually recommend, you know, okay, uh, make sure you fill it up with clean oil, uh, get, a, get a breather on there. And I would run that, you know, uh, till failure, just doing, uh, you know, timed oil changes, you know, because it wouldn't make sense to, to outfit that with sensors, you know, and or for that matter, even do uh, routine oil samples. Now, again, criticality is, is the key whenever I say that. It's got to be a non-critical asset, not heavily loaded. In other words, you know, let's play the odds. So, but uh, that's right. But yeah, you know, but, but let's look at it that way. So, so I don't think it's going to be, you know, hyper expensive, you know, to get into a monitoring program. Let's look at the critical assets. Let's prove the value out and then work out from there. Right. Apply the technology that makes sense for that company and that individual application. Right. That's what it comes down to. And, and they're not all created equal. As you said, criticality is a big, uh, a big impact on, you know, to censor or not to censor, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and uh, you know, and, and one thing I've always, I've always thought, and, and it's something I've tried to preach is, you know, try to do um, less with more. So, you know, cover the critical assets the best you can, and if you know, run to failure like you described, you're going to do very strategic interventions like an oil change. Um, but run to failure is a strategy. Eventually, that's going to you know, eventually it's going to fail. It's going to wear down no matter how good the oil is, right? And you can try mm -hmm. to get that life out of it. 
but run to failure is only a strategy if you pick it ahead of time, right? Like you can't exactly. Just, <laughs> it has to be a proactive decision to <laughs> this is what I'm going to do, right? Uh, but uh, no, this, this was a great conversation, Roy. So where could the listeners go just to get some more information about you know everything we talked about in terms of you know, and, and I guess I didn't, I, I did a disfavor in, in really focusing on the IOT side, because that's really what drives me. But even when you just go into the desk and breather, there is a lot of options and a lot of innovations even happening without the sensors connected to them. So when it comes to um, getting more information about specifically what we're talked about with the IOT desk and breather, as well as your other products and services, what's the best way um, they can get in touch with, with the company? Sure. Well, probably the fastest way is, is like most companies, uh, we do have a, a fairly healthy website, uh, www.deskcase.com. That's all one word, D-E-S-C-A-S-E.com. Uh, and there's several case studies on there. There's actually access to, um, uh, we, we have a learning management system and, uh, you know, we've got some samples of what that would be like. And so people would be able to, you know, uh, look at best practices, uh, things like that. Uh, there's also the contact button on there. And then, of course, if anybody wants to reach out to me directly, uh, <clears throat> and my uh, email address is roy.giorgio at deskcase.com. That's R-O-Y dot G-I-O-R-G-I-O at deskcase.com. So uh, several ways or the uh, so, uh, quick question: are, are, uh, Is is most of the people who subscribe to this podcast are they in Canada? No, actually. So, it, it actually, good for the listeners to know our demographics is. Um, so, I would say the, the majority, about, about a little over fifty percent, is North American based. We have a huge following um, in Australia, in that mm-hmm. part of the world, and um, getting a lot of listeners in uh, Europe as well. Um, so, you know. A year ago, it had been predominantly North America, but uh, we're, we're and we've we've had some guests on in, in different parts of the world. Because one thing I'm trying to do is is not just look at what we're doing here, and I say what we're doing here is in North America, uh, and look at what's happening over the pond, if you will, and and, and but also look at you know different industries, and even uh, um, I had a, a person on technology that yes dealt into manufacturing, but was primarily in financial tech and things like that. Because I think it's important we start to look at not only technology, what we have here today, but also look at industries that might be a little bit ahead of us, right? And mm-hmm. see what's coming down that pipeline. Um, so yeah, so the majority is, the lion's share is, is, is North American based, but uh, growing, growing listeners uh, across the globe. Well, sure. I, well, I was going to give you the, the regional reps, but uh, since we're global on that, uh, we, we, are, we do have a global presence. So probably the uh, easiest way is through the uh, contact button on the website and uh, we'll connect you uh, to the proper person who, who represents that part of the globe. So perfect. Thanks, and thanks for that for us. No, my, my pleasure. Well, I'll put all your contact information in, into the show notes so, so uh, people can reach out to you directly. Roy, this was, this was great to learn that the history of the desk and breathers, what you've been able to do with, with technology in the breathers themselves, how to utilize it, and also some of the other technology that you can integrate into it. Uh, so I appreciate you coming on this and look forward to catching up again, Roy. All right. Well, thanks for having me on.